Thanks for joining us at the Business Growth Cafe, where each week we select from a menu of topics for a focused discussion with an industry expert to provide insights that can impact your business's growth with your host, Angelo Ponzi. I am Angelo Ponzi, your host here at the Business Growth Cafe, and thank you for joining me. Today is a very special show, and for two reasons. First, it is my 100th show. Time flies when you're having fun. It's hard to believe 20 months have passed since my first show. So I want to thank you, my listeners and my guests, because without you, frankly, I would just be talking to myself. And why I like listening to myself talk, I'm glad you're there to listen for me. The second reason today this is a special show is I have an exciting guest. And this guest, we go back to college. In fact, we had a weekly TV show on campus called Rapport. I was the co-producer and director of the show, and my guest is, was my host. I am pleased and honored to welcome Bruce Himmelstein, founder of the BJH Group. Bruce is a sales and marketing expert, speaker, facilitator, and consultant. His background includes chief sales and marketing officer of the Ritz-Carlton Hotels, president of Oceana Cruises, and chief marketing officer of Lowe's Hotels and Resorts. But before we jump into that discussion, I'm going to take a quick break. A chief marketing officer has both the power and the responsibility to drive long-term strategic growth that can ultimately lead to organizational prosperity. And that growth starts with a vision. What is your firm's definition of success? Growth? How will you strategically work towards expansion, for example? Equally important, what is your customer's perception of your firm? And how well do you meet a need or deliver value? When you begin to align your vision with that of your customer, you build a stronger, lasting relationship with them. You see the whole picture, realizing the lifetime value of that customer, as well as the lifetime value you provide. A CMO must look at success with a strategic mindset, looking beyond the transactional. The CMO must understand the customer journey, utilizing the competitive intelligence, embracing and leveraging your unique market insights. If your business is ready for growth and you need a CMO, but you're not quite ready for a full-time person yet, I'd welcome the opportunity to explore the benefits of using a fractional CMO. Visit theponzagroup.com to learn more. As I mentioned, I'm joined by Bruce Himmelstein, founder of the BJH Group. Bruce, welcome. Oh, thank you, Angelo. It's it's an honor to uh, be on your 100th show. And just quick math, I think you and I should get together every 44 years. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, hopefully we don't wait that long. I I, I can't remember. I, I, I want to say you just reached out to me. I, I don't re- actually remember how we got reconnected. Um, I think I saw your name pop up when I was on LinkedIn one day. And uh, I went, whoa, because I, I hadn't seen your name uh, pop up on LinkedIn before. So that's when I reached out to you. Yeah, it's crazy. I mean, I'm sure, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I think I'm tied into our college, which is Geneseo, and maybe that's kind of how that affiliation had us pop up. But uh, I, I'm pleased it happened, and I'm pleased that we can be here, and I'm really pleased that you're on my show today. And we're going to talk about a lot of different things, and I think I'm going to break this show down into a couple different segments. And one of the first ones, I really want to talk about your journey. A little bit because obviously 
as a marketing guy, it's very exciting and, and to hear about your journey and the things that you've done. And then the second part of this, I really want to take advantage of your expertise in the travel and hospitality industry. So a lot of stuff going on right now. And, and I think we talked uh, a week ago, maybe even two weeks ago, and it's changed again. Yeah. It's even changed just since yesterday. And so there's, it's a really dynamic and fluid industry right now. And, and so I want to kind of get some of your perspective on what's happening. I know you shared a video with me that I think you shot back in March. And it, it's completely, from my perspective, very, very different uh, in that video and what the, the leaders of the industry were saying and, and maybe what's actually happening today. And, and maybe even by the time we finish this uh, conversation, it'll change again. But before we jump into that, I always ask my guests some very specific questions. And the first one is when you think about growing your business, your consulting business, what keeps you up at night? Oh, gosh, the the changing dynamic, you know, it's um, believe it or not, um, even though my whole career was spent essentially in the hospitality business, um, I out of all my clients, I only have one hospitality client. The rest are in other segments of business, private equity and uh, health care and education. Um, it's just that the hospitality uh, became a great benchmark to pivot off of other industries because they all they all uh, are students of customer service. They're all students of hospitality and they all want to understand how to grow their business through through that lens. So, um, you know, I've been able to, to pivot towards other segments. So what keeps me up at night is kind of tracking all of their trends and what's going on and how I can still bring value to what they're doing. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I think in a, in a lot of the industries you just talked about and in, in industry in general, it is very fluid every day. I mean, that's part of one of the things that, that I do for my clients is I call it, you know, keeping a pulse on what's going on in market dynamics, if you will, because they, they do change. And I find a lot of times that leadership tends to rely on other people to do that. And, and so it's important for me and, and obviously for you to make sure that we're constantly staying up on these trends and things that can impact the, the growth of our organ, our clients and our organization. The second question is, what is the best business advice you've ever given and or received if it's different? Oh, great question. Um, the best advice I was ever given was surround yourself with people smarter than you and then get out of their way. Um, and I've practiced that my entire career. Um, you, you mentioned some of the world-class organizations that I've been fortunate enough to be part of, and um, I found that to be a winning formula. And so I, I, um, I, always, I always sought out the, the, the people that you could sit in a room with and just be dazzled by and let them, let them run with what they're good at. The best advice that I've given um, is to get really good at two things, which is eye contact and listening skills. Um, unfortunately, in today's environment, those are two things that have somehow got lost. And um, I find that if you're really good at both those things, you, you will stand out. So um, I encourage that. Okay. I, I love that you mentioned listening skills. It's been a topic of, of several of my podcasts that uh, I think it's an art <laughs> um, and something that should be ingrained in everybody. And, and it, 
personally, it, it's irritating to me when we're in, I see businesses and, and people in meetings having conversations. They're not really listening to the conversation. They're just waiting for their next break to interject their own points of view without actually having discussions. And, and I think that's a, a, something that's sorely missing in, in a lot of different uh, communications with people. And it doesn't take you long to, to bust them, does it? No, I mean, it doesn't. You can see it right away. Yeah. The, so it's a, a little different question that I've added in, in my last few is, what's the best compliment you've ever received? That I'm a good father. Love that. I love yeah. that. My, my kids gave me that one. So that's the one that meant the most to me. Yeah, I can see that. Fantastic. And this is a special one for you. If you could go back and talk to your 18-year-old self, <laughs> what what would you say and what advice would you give them? <laughs> oh, gosh, what would I say? Get more sleep um, <laughs> and uh, maybe buy one more shirt other than the flannel one you own. Um, what was the second part of that question? <laughs> what advice would you give them? That uh... Yeah, I, you know, listen – we, we went to school in the 70s, and uh, I'm not sure that uh, going to class on time and uh, totally focused was the priority. Um, somehow we made it through, um, gave the illusion of intelligence, at least I did. And so uh, I'd, say, I'd say stay a little more focused and um, um, be a little more inquisitive because it'll pay off for you the minute you graduate. And then uh, the last one. If your journey that you've taken as a business person and entrepreneur mm. was a book, what would the title be? The Uniform Fit. Can elaborate? Yeah. The, the, the reason is because um, when I graduated school, uh, I had my communications degree, as I think you did. And um, I was looking for a job. And uh, after about six months of rejection, um, I applied to a hotel uh, in Albany, New York, which is where I grew up, and uh, as a housekeeper. And I figured, um, listen, this is easy money. How hard could it be to make beds? Um, but it's real hard, actually. <laughs> Being a housekeeper, they have a 18-point checklist before they um, complete a room, and I was averaging two, maybe three things. Um, which they didn't like. They actually wanted you to do all 18. Um, so I got fired from that job, but um, the general manager of the hotel really liked me. So he, um, he said, how would you like to be a bellboy? And um, I wasn't too keen on it, but I also didn't have a job at that point. So the thought of, you know, collecting tips with a four-year degree just didn't jive for my parents, um, but I needed a job. But the question he asked me was, you know, what size uniform do you wear? Because you're going to have to wear this uniform and um, the uniform fit. And um, so that's how this whole thing, this accidental career in hospitality started. So that would be the title of it. All right. I love that. Yeah, it's funny. You just said something and it actually flashed back on myself. So when I graduated. I came to California and, and I was expecting, uh, I think I told you this story, a director of marketing at Disneyland at the time said, come on out when you graduate, I'll take care of you. Well, I'm an Italian from New York. That meant something totally different to me than, than apparently to him. 
Yeah. And so, uh, so there was no job, and I, I, you know, was hoping to to leverage the the degree in 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 the film world, which is where I was really interested in. But after a few months of actually three months of not working, driving to you know around, knocking on doors constantly, my sister said, "You've got to get a job." And so my first job was at the Gap, folding oh. clothes, and I totally forgot about this. So yeah, I was folding clothes and doing all that. And about three weeks into it, I said, "This is not for me." So I finagled my way and I became one of the cashiers. So it was I don't have to be worried about making sure the money was right, not folding clothes and doing all that other stuff. And and I was there about forty-five days, maybe a little longer than that. I earned my first day off, and then I quit. And ended up in in working for an advertising agency. So yeah, I mean, we do what we had to do to to make that step. And and there was a point in time that if I had maybe gone right and, and stayed in the gap and got into apparel and those kinds of things, that who knows, I'd be com- complete someplace else. Well, yeah, maybe what we thought. You, you might be chapter eleven. They're not doing all that well. Well, that's true too. Yeah. <laughs> Although Angelo, it's really hard to picture you in khakis. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> in corduroys. Yeah, uh, oh man, it was. Uh, I'm literally having flashbacks right now because I totally forgot about that uh, yeah. that little part of my uh, my career. Anyway, um, so let's talk a little bit. So I mean, you're you're a bellboy now, and and obviously you kind of go on. And we we all start somewhere, mm-hmm. and. Uh, and it doesn't necessarily define where we go, but a lot of times it leads us down that path. And so, you know, you, as I said in the opening, I mean, you've had an incredible career, at least from my perspective, and I assume from your perspective and the wonderful things I've read about you. The, so how did you end up as kind of the leader in, in sales and marketing at the Ritz-Carlton? Let's, let's talk a little bit about that, because, I mean, obviously the uh, it, it's fascinating that you started again as a as a um, housekeeper to bellboy to chief marketing and sales officer. Um, well, after um, the the owner of the hotel that I was the bellboy at, and by the way, the, the position changed to bellman, um, so I, I was uh, I got upgraded while I was I was there. Um, <laughs> The owner of the hotel bought a resort in the Poconos called Split Rock. And he was assembling a team to go up and open this hotel. And he asked me if um, I knew anything about sales. And of course, I I said, of course, know anything. Of course I do. Um, I've been schlepping bags for dollars for the last six months. How could I not? So uh, they put me in catering sales and they moved me to the Poconos. And um, so I fell in love with the business. And I was I was the guy selling buffets to, you know, proms and bar mitzvahs and weddings. And I just fell in love with it. But then I realized that, you know, if this was going to be my career, I, I had to get with an organization that allowed a little more growth than, you know, this two hotel company. So I started uh, applying and I heard about this company called Marriott that was starting to grow. This was 1979. And I got a job with Marriott in Midtown Manhattan in their uh, national sales office. 
So I was a junior, junior sales guy. And um, then all of a sudden, the, the things just started happening. I got real good at what I was doing and uh, started winning trips and being recognized. And Bill Marriott would call and send a note of congrats. And fast forward, uh, I opened a bunch of hotels and then I became vice president of sales for Marriott globally. And so that that job put us in Washington, D.C. Uh, at their corporate uh, corporate headquarters in Bethesda, Maryland. And then we got called into Bill Marriott's office one day. Um, and, and he said, look, strategically, uh, we're represented in every level of the business except one. We, we have extended stay hotels with residents in. We've got um, economy hotels with Courtyard and with Airfield Inn. What we don't have is luxury. So we made the decision. Uh, well, the, the decision was, do we build or do we buy? And we made the decision to buy. So last night we concluded the purchase of the Ritz-Carlton Hotel Company. And um, about two weeks later, I was asked to uh, head up sales and marketing for the brand, which was an honor because there's a lot of people that they, they could have put in that role. Um, so uh, before I knew it, um, I was heading up a global iconic hotel brand. And uh, I went from, you know, uh, 35 hotels to 108 in eight years, traveling the world several times. And so um, that was that was the beginning of uh, understanding the power of a brand. Before I was just part of a company. Right. And I understood what the power of a brand was. So. I mean, in a nutshell, that's that's kind of how that that occurred in in this industry, in the in in the hotel industry. I mean, obviously, the competition is huge. I mean, there's a lot of marketing, a lot of promotions, a lot of opportunities, loyalty programs, all all sorts of different ways to attract you know various customers. What was your what was your biggest challenge uh, in in that leadership role and in, in building that brand? Um, there was a couple. One was keeping up the firewalls between Marriott and Ritz-Carlton. Um, we, we strategically didn't want to let the consumer know beyond whatever financial press went out that Marriott owned Ritz-Carlton, um, a la Toyota owning Lexus. You know, mm-hmm. there's a gravitas to Lexus being positioned alone and not you know, letting everybody know that they're owned by Toyota. So we, we had, um, that was the biggest challenge was keeping the firewalls up. Um, the second challenge was maintaining strong market share without a loyalty program. You know, you, you brought that issue up, but Ritz-Carlton had no loyalty program, but yet we dominated every market we operated in because um, the service level was off the charts compared to anybody else offering points. So business travelers or leisure travelers or group attendees, they paid because they really wanted to experience the brand. So you always had to keep the brand in focus ahead of what everybody else was doing. So they wouldn't say, well, we're considering this other guy because he's going to give me points. We never played that game, at least then they do now. Um, But back then there was, you know, our main competition was Four Seasons. It was either Ritz-Carlton or Four Seasons, and neither neither of those brands had loyalty programs. So um, it kept us on our toes to perform 
and just give the experience that you paid for without the other stuff. Mm -hmm. Well, you were also, I assume, going after for a certain segment of the of the market as well. I mean, it wasn't. Yeah. As you segment, as you mentioned with Marriott, all the different brands. I mean, those are all segmented based on you know demographic profiles and psychographic profiles and all those kinds of things. So you were certainly going after the higher end um, of the market. That's correct. Yeah. I mean, it's look. You know, when you purpose build a a, a perishable product, which is all a, a hotel is, it's a box. And it, and it spoils every 24 hours. So if you don't yield the right amount of people paying the right money every 24 hours, you're going to, you're going to fail. So the pressure was on to make sure the positioning of the Ritz Carlton was kept at a premium. The products and the services delivered, um, made people feel like even though they were paying a premium, they were getting a value. Did you find a huge change in kind of say, I'll call it, uh, you know, marketing to the general population in luxury marketing. I mean, is were there different approaches that you took as a as a from a strategic standpoint in in targeting those luxury consumers? Very much so. Um, the lines started getting blurred. You know, in uh, a while, you know, if I showed you stock photos from uh, I don't know, 1995 for a luxury brochure. It would be equestrians and private jets and women and minks getting out of Rolls Royces. And those were the stock shots that, you know, you, you would put a collateral piece or a campaign together with. 2005, it was more diversity, more multi-generational, much more focused on experiential, less about the stuff and more about the experiences. So by the time I was in my second year in the role, I wasn't even showing buildings and ballrooms and lobbies and rooms. You were showing experiences. You were showing um, tea fields. You were showing a grandfather throwing his, his grandson up in the air, you know, in the pool. It, it was a very different way to, to look at it. And I went from meeting with the chief marketing officer of Louis Vuitton to the chief marketing officer of Costco, because our customers were shopping at Costco. Um, you know, the highest uh, volume of, of fine wine in the world is sold at Costco. Um, and their database became very attractive to us. So it was a bit of a paradigm shift going from the databases and the partnerships of Neiman Marcus's and Vuitton's to um, Costco and JetBlue. Mm -hmm. the, the line started blurring. You couldn't you couldn't just package people up and put them in categories anymore. The, the lines were just blurring everywhere. Well, and you, you also mentioned, too, about experiential. I mean, in this kind of customer service thing, it's a cu customer first customer experience. I mean, it's really about that kind of strategic approach of putting the customer in the forefront. And, and for me, it's always about can I emotionally connect? with the customer versus, you know, really from the kind of the rational stuff that the two point, the stuff versus how do I, you know, really tug at their heartstrings, you know, the grandpa throwing the kid up in the air and those kinds of things that, that plays much differently for me that if I can make that emotional connection, I build a stronger loyalty. Well, yeah. And you've got, you know, you've got two kinds of, of cultures, two kinds of companies, one that, um, one that is customer centric and then one that is policy centric. And I can spot them 
you know, two seconds into our relationship. Everyone can. It's just that I, I'm my radar is up a little a little higher. Um, I'll give you I'll give you an example. You you walk into a hotel at noon, and you say to the person behind the desk, "I'm checking in." The policy centric person says, "Our check in's not till four o'clock." The customer centric person says, "Let me see if I have a room available." Mm-hmm. One is who you select, who you train. I mean, who you hire, who you train, and what's the scripting during moments like that. And that'll separate your brands very quickly. Yep, that's happened to me in both situations. <laughs> I certainly, uh, what do you mean? I, I have to sit around in the lobby for three hours. It makes me a not a very happy customer when that happens. Yeah, and, and the, the person that, that's behind the desk can easily look and see if they do have a room available. Um, and if they don't, they can tell you, hey, look, I, I just looked, I tried. We don't really have anything, but uh, come back in an hour. Let me see what I can do, which is very different than our check-in is at 4 o'clock. So let's let's move on a bit. Um, after that, you did a, looked like maybe a year it as the president of Oceana Cruises. Yes. Yeah. You know, cruise lines are, in my opinion, like a floating hotel. But yeah. but how do you go from, you know, Marriott and, and Ritz to cruise ships? I got bought. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we all have our price. <laughs> yeah. But this I mean, I wasn't looking, but um, the, uh, the CEO of the, of the brand of the company or we uh, um, Oceana, um Frank Del Rio made a pretty compelling uh, pitch that he really wanted to um, upgrade um, his experience. He wanted to go after a younger demographic, which is what my team was successful in doing at Ritz-Carlton. There's a book out called The New Gold Standard written by Dr. Joseph Michelli. And um, it's a New York Times bestseller. And he chronicled uh, Ritz-Carlton. He did a, a really phenomenal book on, on the brand. And um, he highlighted all this work of how we pivoted our positioning to go after a younger demographic while still staying true to the culture and, and to the brand. So Frank wanted to do the same thing. He had read about what we did, heard about what I had done, and wanted to do the same thing uh, with Oceana. So he, he hired me. I hated the cruise business. I, I just hated the cruise business. I, I like it as a consumer. Mm-hmm. My family and I, we, we, we go on cruises, um, but I just didn't like being in the business. So I didn't, I didn't hang around very long. Okay. Yeah. I, as a consumer, I love, I love to cruise. I, I've taken some great trips and I really love it. And, but I just th- look at the kind of the operational side when I'm, when I'm on the ship and just imagine the, all the different aspects and and to your point and i'm i'm as we're talking i mean i'm hearing you know customer service a lot customer centricity coming out of you it seems to be you know that that is really what you've used to help differentiate the brands that you've worked with well it's important you know it's it's all about the customer um if you're not if you're not if every move you're making um in your company doesn't revolve around the customer, then, then you need to question why you're doing it. Then, then, then you went back to, after that, you went back to the, to the uh, hospitality, you went to Lowe's, right? Yeah. I, um, the owner of Lowe's 
uh, it was an old fr- is an old friend of mine, um, John Tish. Uh, they own the New York Giants. Um, they own Lowe's Hotels. They own CNA Insurance. It's about a $16 billion company. He had called saying that he was um, starting a new leadership team because he wanted to shift the brand and change the brand and would like to have me on board. Um, and so I, I commuted from Boca Raton, Florida to Midtown Manhattan every week for four years Yikes! because I didn't want to move to New York. Uh, I had done New York three times in my career and I was done. So um, we had been living in Florida, loving it. My kids were here. My grandkids were starting to get born here. And, but I really wanted the challenge. I really wanted the job. I wanted to work for John. So um, I did it for four years and loved every minute of it. I just, it was a burnout after 3 a.m. wake up calls on Monday and 6 a.m. jet blues to LaGuardia, getting home, you know, Friday and repacking on Sunday night. So um, I decided, I started getting an awful lot of calls to do speeches and serve on boards and consult. And so I figured it was probably the right time for me to do that. So I never uh, looked back. So your current company then is five years old, six years old? Yeah, five years old. Yeah, about five years old. Okay. And yeah. and what's kind of your, and again, you know, you, you, you mentioned speeches and I've seen you, you've given lots of um, uh, presentations and, and keynotes. What's the, you know, kind of overview of what you're doing today? Well, right now, I mean, it was uh, prior to COVID, it was um, a pretty even split between um, speaking and consulting. But there's not a lot of people filling ballrooms to hear speakers right now. And luckily, you know, I've, I've been sought after uh, on the consulting side. So I've been pretty busy uh, just doing that. And so it's been it's been pretty cool. Um, I'm also on two boards. So it's it's uh, it's been a real interesting journey, probably the right thing for me to do at this point in my career. Mm-hmm. The um, and then you mentioned early in the conversation. I mean, it's, you you have hospitality, but you have education mm-hmm. and, and a variety of different different clients now in the different industries. Yeah, there, there's this intersection of hospitality and healthcare is white hot right now. You know, when when I was the CMO at Ritz Carlton, I was asked to uh, be on a hospital board of directors, and um, I was I, I was confused at the time why I got the request, but after meeting with the president and the board, they really wanted to start putting uh, more of a highlight on their patient experience. And this was, gosh, this was you know 15 years ago. And so I would sit in these board meetings between the head of oncology and the head of you know uh, cardiology, talking about how their coffee shop is disgusting. And, you know, nobody's cleaned it in months and it looks horrible. And, you know, I would I would bring the, the, the lens of a Ritz-Carlton customer and operator into a hospital boardroom. And so those were some pretty interesting um, experiences and learnings for them. But now, fast forward, you've got healthcare systems that have vice presidents of hospitality as a as a position just solely focused on increasing the patient experience. You've got education uh, organizations that are hiring people in hospitality because they realize the student is a customer. And so when I'm visiting your college, I'm also visiting three more. Well, you know, why are you losing 
Why are you not getting every single student and mom and dad that are coming looking at you? Where's the data that says, here's why they said no. What are you doing mm-hmm. about it? What changes are you making? So if you can get the paradigm shift into other businesses to start thinking about their, their entities as customers, the patient's a customer, the student's a customer, then you start having some pretty animated dialogue with them. So that, that's really, you know, all my business has been word of mouth, thank God. Um, I've done very little, if no advertising. I have a website, that's about it. But it's a pretty, it's a pretty small village of people that want to bring in the hospitality voice into what they're doing. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, there's so many different aspects that I I think that organizations don't pay attention to. Mm -hmm. Um, I know I worked with a lot of restaurant chains over the years and, and anytime I would get hired, the first thing I would do in my first visit would I'd walk into this, into the restaurant, walk to the bathroom. And that's where I would start. The bathroom was dirty. Then I then I was suspect that everything else was bad. That's right. And, and the other thing too, and when uh, we would engage, a lot of times I would want my team to actually work at the counter and, and experience what it was like to talk to customers and things like that. Again, looking for that customer experience. How can I market an organization if I don't really understand it from the ground up and the people that work there? You know how I know when a restaurant is run properly? You, you went to the bathroom. You know what question I ask? Mm-mm. I'll ask, um, let's say I, I, I sat down and I ordered an appetizer or a cocktail from my server. And I haven't seen my server for 10 minutes, but I see a manager. I'll call the manager over and I'll say, excuse me, I ordered a, a cocktail and an appetizer. You're going to get one of two responses. Let me find your server or let me go get that for you. You can tell you can tell the restaurant that's going to be most successful by which response you get. So let's let's move on a little bit and talk about hospitality and what's going on with coronavirus. I mean, if you know, if we look at uh, just recently, of course, you're in Florida and and the spikes in Florida and Texas and Arizona, and and now we're seeing reversals of the way you know, the governors were dealing with it. Now we're putting on, they're putting on masks and encouraging masks, which they weren't doing before. And and here in California, we've seen horrendous spikes and uh, our governor turned around and started closing all the bars in in Los Angeles and several other cities and counties. It was very different when I actually did, I, I did a search on current reviews of the pandemic and the travel industry. And it was really interesting that most of them were, March and April, I actually couldn't find, I didn't see one readily pop up for May. And there was just one that I saw pop up in June. So that data, even from way that they were talking just 30 days ago, two, two weeks ago, and one day ago is very different. So from your perspective, what's that kind of 30,000 foot view of what's going on? What's the biggest challenge that hospitality industry faces to get, to get back? Well, ironically, the biggest challenge is there is no 30,000 foot view. There's only tarmac. And um, because things are changing daily. Um, You know, you you mentioned you're in California, I'm in Florida. Yesterday, um, the governor announced our beaches are going to close for Fourth of July weekend. Uh, I think you guys got the same thing out in, in California. You know, Atlantic City. Uh, was supposed to open July 1st, all the casinos, and the governor just postponed that. So now you're all these thousands of workers getting ready to go back. And because of the spike, 
that's now gone. So there's, it's very tough to project. It's very tough to plan because no one knew two weeks ago there was going to be spikes in six states. We just canceled our family vacation in Hilton Head uh, because South Carolina's got a major spike. And so I'm, I, you know, I've got 11 family members that I would have between my kids and grandkids. I can't put them at risk. So now you're the operator of the hotel that had my reservation. You're the rent-a-car company that had my reservation. You're the restaurants that had my reservation. That's all gone now. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's very hard to predict. And I will tell you that the drive market's been redefined. Pre-COVID, you know, maybe you would sit in the car for an hour, hour and a half, two hours, maybe to drive somewhere and go on vacation. Now people are driving up and down the East Coast just to get away because uh, they don't want to fly. They don't want to go near an airport. So as a marketer, as a, as a hospitality marketer, you're now focused on your drive markets and you're now messaging more about the safety of getting in a car and coming to see us. So things are changing day to day. So I, I there, there, it's tougher to tell you that by this date, this will come back because it's all in the hands of, of the spikes and all in the hands of how well the vaccine progress is coming. Once that hits, it's a game changer, right? Mm-hmm. Once, once there's a vaccine, then, then it's, you know, here we go. But right now it's very difficult. I can tell you that the majority of the meetings that were booked in 2020 have been rescheduled for 2021. That's good news. They weren't canceled. The majority of them were rescheduled. So if you belong to the National Association of whatever, or you belong to XYZ Corporation, and you had a meeting coming up, you're not going to have it. You're going to have it probably in Q1 or Q2 of next year. So that all shifts. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, it's very difficult to predict. And I think, too, in, in the cruise industry, what I've heard is that people are not necessarily canceling their cruises. They're just pushing them out into either the fall or into 2021. Um, That's right. So Yeah. So I think there is that shift. I also think, though, you know, eventually and in, in, in we saw, you know, when the when the um, the lockdown was being lifted and people started returning to the beaches and, you know, you could point to the millennials that all gathering in bars and, and didn't really care. But I think in general though, and you can, you can tell me about this. There's really a, a trust and confidence at some point in time that the brands have to communicate that their hotel or their cruise line or whatever it happens to be is, is safe, is safer. Cause there's always, I would imagine some kind of lingering, in the back of people's mind is, you know, is this really stamped out or is it just there and, and just waiting to, to hit us again? You know, like the cruise industry always got hit with that norovirus all the time. How, how do you see kind of a, from a, a brand perspective on what's going to, what's it going to take to build that confidence back? Well, it's, it's an interesting uh, dilemma because as a brand, you can't go out with a marketing campaign saying my rooms are more sanitized than the other guy. That's just not a campaign you're going to lead with, right? So the industry itself has done a good job setting standards for the hotels, for the brands. So you have American Hotel and Lodging, you have U.S. Travel that have come out and said, look, these are the standards, right? These are the sanitizing, these are the plexiglass, these are the masks, these are the you know, you got to wait an extra 24 hours before you turn the room over. You got to put tape over the, the crack of the door to seal it. So the industry has has set up standards. The brands 
uh, especially the really, um, you know, the big brands, they'll go above and beyond the standards. You know, in, in dealing with, I still, you know, I work, I'm an advisor for an owner of a Ritz-Carlton and a Kempton in Grand Cayman. And so I'm on calls constantly with both those brand teams. And right now, the, the only thing that, that's on any brand marketer's mind is getting their destination and their hotel shelf space in your head. The fact that they're going to be sanitized and safe and clean, you, you may find that in the body copy. You're not going to find it as a headline because they're all going to say that. Mm-hmm. And so, again, to my earlier point, I'm not going to lead with my hotel is more sanitized than yours. Well, I think, too, and, and you're, you're right. I mean, it is about the messaging and, and understanding, you know, the needs of the audience. And, and I always look to when I deal with competitive situations is, you know, what's the ante? What's everybody saying? And then how do we say something that's, that differentiates us from everybody else? And if everybody leads with, hey, we're sanitized and we're clean, you know, then, then there is really no separation. And then also uh, I, I also get concerned when I see some of the things happening with my clients and, and the people that I talk to, that they're diluting their brands in the short term because they need, you know, short term revenue. But in the long term, they're doing damage, which always concerns me. Well, that's a great point. You know, you, you don't want to, uh, you know, back in 09, if you recall the the economic Lehman Brothers disaster, and I was sitting in my role at Ritz-Carlton, we, we lost probably 30 to 35% revenue overnight because uh, a third of our segment is business travel. And you had, um, you had CFOs of companies saying, do not stay at a Ritz-Carlton. I'm not going to approve your expense report. We're laying hundreds of people off. Don't be staying in a luxury hotel. And so we got hammered by that. But we had owners of hotels putting pressure on us to lead with a, with a, a cheap rate to fill rooms. And to your point, you, you don't want to throw your brand under the bus for short-term revenue. Mm-hmm. Because I could throw out a cheap rate, but I'll never get full rate again. So we had to really ride the, ride the wave. And... Uh, Thank God it turned out well. The, um, I mean, I don't think that, it, it, from my perspective, it's a, it's the travel industry that's going to just come back on its own because what's happening now is also very tied to healthcare, as you pointed out earlier, and also we've got the government involvement and, and what's the government doing. So I mean, it's almost like a, the three legs of the stool are necessary for for everything to kind of start to get back and and to build that. Is that a, a fair statement? Yeah. I mean, how would you like to be the poor guy sitting in, in London or Paris or Rome where 30% of your revenue comes from U.S. travelers? And as of today, you can't go to Europe as an American. I mean, you know, the rules are being written daily. So it's so hard to, you, you got to be able to pivot. You got to be resilient. Um, you've got to be able to, to, to move quickly based on the, 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 the hand you're getting dealt today. In, in, in the clients that you deal with and, and, and maybe people that you know, what, what are some of the kind of the common questions you're getting asked right now? Well, a lot of them are what, what you asked a little while ago, where do you see this thing going? And I get asked by a lot of um, students, you know, would you still go in the hospitality business? Um, is this a career I, I should still 
pursue? I always answer yes, an exciting business to be in, and it's going to be around forever. You know, people said after 9-11, no one will fly again, and that didn't happen. And people said after, um, you know, 09, people aren't going to stay in, you know, expensive hotels again. That didn't happen. So it's, we'll get through this. Um, but those, those are the concerns and the questions that I do get. We as Americans have a short-term memory when it comes to all this stuff. We eventually get on with it and put the stuff in the past and just keep moving on. When you think about business travel versus leisure travel, do you think that with the change in, in utilizing Zoom and, and kind of this virtual meetings going on, do you think that's going to have an impact on business travel? Not so much leisure travel, but business travel in the future? I, I think it's a question of increments. I don't think it's a pendulum swing. So if, if, if you're going to, maybe you will replace, maybe you do a hundred meetings a year as an organization. Last year, you didn't do any of them virtually. Maybe next year you'll do 12 of them virtually. You're not going to, you're not going to go a hundred virtually. Okay. So I think it's a question of, of increments. People still need to be together. That's just the social animal in us. They still need to be in front of their clients. They still need to uh, meet with people, uh, their associates. So I, I don't, I don't believe that the technology will replace in person. I do think that that um, because of the new protocols in hotels for a while, you'll see less, you'll see less of them. So instead of ten people sitting at a round table having lunch, watching a speaker, you're only going to have four or six. So your capacities will shift. Your protocols will shift. But I don't think it's a, again, I don't think it's a forever thing. Thinking about your current business, I mean, tell me, tell me a story. Tell me about, I love success stories. Tell me about a story about a typical engagement of, of with one of your clients and, and kind of the work that you did and, and kind of the end result of that. Well, it's, it's one of the examples I just brought up to you about education. I got retained and now I'm actually on the board of, of, um, of a, of a, a private four-year school. They were looking to increase their enrollment. And so I, I started asking questions that probably they hadn't been asked before. Like I, I mentioned to you a few minutes ago, why do people say no to you? Show me, take me on the tour from the minute that the car pulls up with dad and mom and the kid gets out, walk me on the tour, give me the tour, show me where you're going to show me, show me Give me the whole experience. And then I'd like to see whatever follow-up correspondence. When I say goodbye to you, we're going to think about it. We have two more schools to visit. I'd like to see what the follow-up is to that. There was none of that. And it wasn't looked at through the lens of a conversion. It was looked at as, oh, here's another family considering our school. And we did it back of the envelope that if we can increase conversion by 10%, it's millions of dollars for them. But they never focused on it. Well, we focused on it. And we had meetings about it and we had role plays about it. And um, that conversion went up 18% in 30 days, just because we put some blocking and tackling and some business sense around the experience. That I think um, has shifted permanently in the way that they're thinking about the student and that whole experience. Okay, all right, fantastic. So two more, when you wake up every day, what inspires you? that the day is my own, that I, I, get to, I get to plan the day the way I want to. Uh, I, I worked for 36 years to get to that point. 
And so what inspires me now is if I want to go to the gym first thing and not take my first meeting until 11 o'clock, that's what I'm going to do. So I'm, I'm, I'm feeling gratified. I'm feeling I've earned it. I'm feeling uh, very satisfied that I've gotten to that point. And I'm happy you have, my friend. <laughs> Some people say to me, it's like, you work for yourself. That must be great. You have all this free time. I said, well, I have free time to choose whether I work in the morning, the evening, the afternoon, on Saturday or on Sunday. Yes, I have choices. It's just I get to pick when I do it, but I do do it. That's right. So um, one last question then, you know, this is a, is a business show and this has been great. I mean, it's, I, I've loved the conversation. I love, frankly, for me, I was catching up on your life, um, which has been, which has been great, but this is a business show. So thinking about my listeners are everywhere from startups to small to medium sized businesses. What advice can you give my listeners about, their growth strategies and moving forward. Well, I'll give you the I'll give you the the headline that resonates with me, which is take your business seriously, not yourself. Uh, I meet with an awful lot of people that think they're they're solving world hunger and they're really not, and so th they don't get to attract the best talent. They don't get to put the best plans in place. I would say for growth strategy. Um, Bring in people that represent all disciplines in your company, regardless of whether or not they hold the title. So um, when I used to put together our annual marketing plan, I made sure that I had HR, operations, food and beverage, IT as part of the process so that I wasn't sitting in a silo just thinking about marketing, that I had the business at the table. I had all the voices of the business at the table so that 100% of the time that somebody would bring something up I hadn't thought of, but it was important for the business. And when you do that, um, your plan gets animated um, quicker and there's ownership across the entire organization because they had a voice in putting it together. So I would encourage people out there, whether they're running a two-person shop or a 500-person company, get, get diverse voices at the table for your planning so that you, you'll get some aha moments that you wouldn't have had without them. I love that, by the way. And, and for you listeners out there, you've heard me say not exactly those same words, but many of those words because I like to take a holistic approach to looking at marketing, and, and I do involve you know, manufacturing and inventory and HR and accounting. Why? Because whatever we do is going to impact the organization. And I, I jokingly say, one of my clients is, you know, what's your goal? And he's, I want a million dollar sale. That's great. And I said, oh, by the way, if we get that million dollar sale, can we produce it in time? Do we have the inventory in stock? Do we have the people to get it done? Uh, I don't know. Well, we need to make sure everybody has a voice to your point. So when we do those kinds of things and we do go out and set our plans, we have the capacity to actually deliver on the promise that we make to our customers. I love that. Thank you. So Bruce, this has been a, a wonderful conversation. Uh, why don't you tell my listeners how they can uh, reach out to you, say hi, connect with you and all that good stuff. Uh, sure. Well, my, my website is uh, the bjhgroup.com. And I uh, would love to hear from your listeners. And I, I've been 
I have to be honest with you, Angela, I was really looking forward to this. I mean, I, I said to you when we first spoke, I said, I, I, if I ran the alumni newsletter at Geneseo, what a story that two guys, you know, in college that worked on a TV show 44 years later are, are on doing a podcast together. I mean, that's, that's really incredible. So I, I, um, I, I wish you continued success and I want to thank you for having me. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, well, hopefully, as you said, we don't go uh, 44 years again until we until we say hi, and and maybe we need to uh, to tell the people at uh, at the alumni uh, magazine that uh, we've got a story for them. I think so. That'd be great. Yeah. Well, I'd like to thank you, my listeners, for joining me at the cafe today. You can find out more about me, read my blogs, watch my videos, or sign up to receive more information at theponzigroup.com, or certainly connect with me on LinkedIn. And if your business is ready for growth and you need a CMO, but you're not quite ready for a full-time person yet, connect with me. I'd love the opportunity to talk to you about the benefits of using a fractional CMO. And lastly, please subscribe to this show. And if you're already a subscriber, I encourage you to let others know about the great content like we had here today with Bruce. And you can also go to the businessgrowthcafe.com on my website or any podcast platform you like to listen to. Join me next week at the Business Growth Cafe. And Bruce, thank you so much. This has been fantastic. Great seeing you, Angelo. Thank you. You're welcome. Stay well. You too. Thank you for listening to today's discussion at the Business Growth Cafe with your host, Angelo Ponzi. Take a moment to subscribe to this podcast and visit our website at www.businessgrowthcafe.com. Read Angelo Ponzi's blogs at www.theponzigroup.com.